Today is the third installment in the sermon series that we are currently in, What is the Church? So the first couple weeks, uh, the first week we talked about how the church is uh, a temple of God, a new temple of God. Um, it's a place where reconciliation with God, reconciliation with one another um, is put on display for all to see. And last week we talked about how the church is a priesthood. Uh, and so similar to priests in the Old Testament, our role within God's church, within the new temple, is to reflect his holiness and intercede for one another, offer spiritual sacrifices to God. So that's being a priesthood. Today we are going to spend our time in John chapter 15, and we're going to focus on how the church is a branch, and a branch connected to Jesus being the true vine. So that's where we'll be today, but before we jump into John chapter 15, there's some groundwork that I think is, is beneficial to do so that we can better hear Jesus' words as his Jewish disciples would have heard them, because that's who Jesus is talking to in John 15, to his disciples. And when Jesus referred to himself at the beginning of that passage as the true vine, he wasn't using a new metaphor. Um, he, he wasn't making a statement with, with absolutely no history to it. Really quite the opposite, in fact. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, are, are referred to as either a vine or a vineyard. And, and in fact, during the time of Jesus, the temple itself at that, at that time had, it had an ornate golden vine in the, in the temple structure, which, which further cemented this image from the Old Testament. And so I'm going to read, uh, read three passages for you from the Old Testament uh, that make this reference. And, and as I'm doing that, what I, would, uh, what I would encourage you to do is be on the lookout, not just for the vine vineyard imagery, but, but be on the lookout for something else that all three of these passages have in common with one another. Um, so I'll, I'll read these for us. Uh, the first one is from Isaiah chapter 5, and I'll start in verse 1. It says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. 
for righteousness, but behold an outcry. So that's Isaiah chapter 5. The next passage is from Ezekiel chapter 15. And again, starting in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it, and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. And then the final passage is just a couple verses from Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved... He improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. And the altars and the pillars there are referencing worshiping of idols, worshiping of false gods. So, so those are just three of the passages that, that speak of God's people as a vine or as a vineyard. But other than that, did you notice what all of those passages had in common with one another. It's not only that Israel was referred to as a vine, but one which faced judgment, one that was looking destruction in the eye. Uh, so in Isaiah 5, the vineyard yielded wild grapes, right? And, and so it faced judgment. In Ezekiel 15, we weren't told why the vine was dead, but it was dead. And the wood of the vine... He was, God was saying through Ezekiel, the wood of a vine wasn't, wasn't good for anything except to be burned for fuel. And so that's how it would be used. And then in Hosea chapter 10, the vine had borne fruit. It had experienced prosperity, but the more the prosperity it saw, the more it turned to idolatry. And, and as a result, it was guilty and, and would be judged. So it's clear that, that although Israel is God's chosen people, his chosen vine, they failed to produce the fruit that he desired. Even though he had brought the vine out of Egypt, cleared the land, planted it, given it shade, protected it. That all comes from Psalm 80, another passage that utilizes this image. Even though God had done all of that, the vine still failed to produce fruit. And so I think about that, uh, that golden vine that was in the temple at the time of Jesus. And it's somewhat interesting that, that even though that golden vine was probably seen as an image of power and delight by the Jews, it really should have been a reminder of the failure of God's people. Because as the prophets foretold, as they spoke about what had happened, the people had turned away from God. They hadn't produced the fruit as he desired. 
And then along came Jesus, right? And so it's, it's with all of that Old Testament history in mind that we ought to read John chapter 15. And so I would encourage you to turn there in your Bibles to follow along with me. And again, let's, let's hear Jesus talking here as a Jew, as his Jewish disciples would have heard it based on that history. So John 15, verse 1, Jesus says this, I am the true vine. Immediately we connect that back with what we just read, right? I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I, excuse me, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So in the context of John's gospel, this is the final I am statement that Jesus makes. And in identifying himself as the true vine, he, he states his perfect fulfillment of all that God's people Israel were meant to be. So we read all of those passages where Israel as the true vine had failed... Jesus says, I'm the true vine. Where Israel had failed, he succeeded. And, and along with that identity of being the true vine, Jesus says that his father's the vine dresser. So his father's the one who cares for not just the vine, but the branches as well. The people of God who are connected to the true vine. So as, as we explore this passage this morning, we might be tempted to read it solely from an individualistic perspective. And, and while these words do indeed challenge us as individuals, we must remember that Jesus spoke these words to his disciples. He's speaking to the, you know, the gathered followers there. So, so we'll talk about how we'll talk about this calling to bear fruit uh, through abiding in Jesus and, and how it applies to us individually, but also we'll talk about what it means for the local church. Um, so as Jesus talked about the work of his father, he told how the father takes away branches that don't bear fruit and prunes those that do in order that they might bear more fruit. Bearing fruit is at the heart of Jesus' teaching here. Um, he mentioned it in verse 2, verse 5, 
verse 8. Uh, he's going to mention it again in verse 16 that we'll get to shortly. The focal point is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. Now, if we go back to what we discussed regarding the nation of Israel, we might start to see this as a futile, futile goal. Right? I mean, I, if God's chosen people, Israel, had failed time and time again to bear fruit, why would it be any different for us? I mean, are we to assume that we are, uh, we're somehow less sinful than they were, and so we're more capable of bearing fruit than the people of Israel at that time? I don't think so. I don't think we're supposed to see ourselves that way. What we see in Jesus' words here is that our calling is not to be the vine which bears fruit. We are not the vine. Our calling is to be a branch which bears fruit as it's connected to the vine. I mean, Jesus said, he starts it off, I am the true vine. Nowhere in there does he say you are the vine. He says, I am the vine. We would make terrible vines just like the nation of Israel. But in Christ, we can be abundant fruit-bearing branches as we abide in that true vine. And I just love how Jesus takes in kind of an abstract concept and makes it tangible for us through his use of that vine and branch metaphor. I mean, we don't have any difficulty understanding that, that a branch cannot produce a piece of fruit if it doesn't remain connected to the vine or to the tree, for example. Like, I can't pick up a stick off the ground, throw it up into the apple tree, and expect that branch to start producing apples. I mean, it doesn't work that way, right? It's not connected to the tree. It doesn't matter if it's caught up in with the rest of the branches. If it's not connected, it's not going to bear fruit. And similarly, I can't you know, if I'm feeling lazy and I don't want to walk out back to the apple tree and pick an apple every time I want one, I can't cut off the branch and bring it in the house and it'll bear apples for me there. It doesn't work that way. I've connected, I've disconnected it from the tree. And so it, it's such a basic concept, right? I mean, we, we get it. It makes perfect sense. But even though the concept is simple, I think the application of the concept, the application of Jesus' words still warrants uh, discussion. I mean, after all, what does it mean practically to bear fruit by abiding in Jesus? What does that mean, abide in Jesus? What's the fruit that I will produce when abiding in him? I think we can start by identifying the fruit. Uh, this passage in John 15 is, is quite often studied in tandem with Galatians chapter 5, uh, and for good reason. It's in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 where Paul lists uh, what he refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, that, that's, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Those are, those are all things which show themselves in our actions, but, but even more than that, flow from our character as we're abiding in Jesus. And so, and when we bear that fruit in our lives, Jesus says in verse, uh, verse 8, he says, "...by this my Father is glorified." 
God is glorified. It's, how, it's one of the ways that we worship him as we, as we bear fruit. Well, that's all well and good, right? I, I imagine each one of us probably desires to grow in every one of those uh, fruit of the Spirit that I just listed. But each one of us probably also knows that sheer desire alone does not produce those fruit, right? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. But we can't. <laughs> Right? I mean, we know that. How often have we looked back at a situation and been frustrated that we didn't display whatever applicable fruit of the Spirit like we wanted to? So, so how do we? How do we, how do we grow in that? What, what, what is needed in order to increase that fruit in our lives? I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was this simple seven-step process to bring about growing fruit, and it has to be seven steps, right? Because that's the perfect number for, I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was something like that? The good news this morning is there, there is something, and it's only a one-step process, so even easier to remember than seven. It's a one-step process. Jesus says that to bear fruit, we abide in him. One step. We abide in him. If we abide in him, we will bear fruit. Some, some translations, uh, instead of abide, say remain. Remain in Jesus. That's all there is to it. We abide in him. As I was thinking about that, you know, that one-step process, I thought, well, that's kind of a relief. Like, man, one step, that's pretty easy. But then it's kind of frustrating as well. Like, abide... Abide. I mean, is there a more passive verb in the English language than to just abide? Or maybe rest, but, but Jesus says, you know, um, he says that we should come and rest in him. So even that is connected, I think, to abiding in Jesus. I mean, it, it feels like such a, such a passive command. Uh, to, but to abide in Jesus is to be a branch that is connected to him and trusting him for everything that it needs. It's trusting. To, to abide in Jesus is not to do things under our own supposed power or supposed wisdom or supposed intellect, but, but to trust his ways and his commands. That, that's, that's abiding in him. So it might seem like abiding is... A pretty passive verb at first glance, but Jesus, I think, goes on to show that it's, it's actually quite active. Abiding in him really is a pretty active thing. I mean, that's why Jesus says that when we are abiding in him and, and in his love, we'll keep his commands. If you abide in me, you keep my commands. And he used his own example of abiding in the love of the Father, which was evidenced through his own keeping of his Father's commands. So we abide in Jesus by keeping the commands that he's given to us. Now, now before we go any farther, I, you know, we have to be super clear that this is not Jesus saying that we experience the love of God as a reward for works or as a reward for obedience. It's not Jesus saying that our, our keeping of his commands is essential in order to connect ourselves to the vine and connect ourselves to his love. 
that, that's a works-based righteousness and a works-based salvation that is clearly opposed to the true message of the gospel. God loves us before we do anything worthy of love. And, that, and that's even assuming that we can do anything worthy of love. I mean, God loves us first. Paul writes in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 that it's, it's by God's grace that we are saved. It's our faith, not our works, which opens us to that grace. So we're not saved by good works, but Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to say that we are saved unto good works, or we are saved for good works, to do good works, or created in Christ Jesus for good works. So to go back to the vine metaphor, it's not our good works that connect us to the vine. It's our connection to the vine which produces good works in us. And those are two very different things. But we can't, we can't, it's important that we keep salvation by God's grace and good works in their proper place. Because one does lead to the other. We just have to make sure we remember which one leads to which one. That's crucial. It's our connection to the vine which produces those good works. And so Jesus says that the way we as branches abide in him or remain connected to him is, is, uh, is so that we can bear fruit, right? And that bearing fruit, right, the way that that happens is through the abiding, through keeping his commands. And when we think about it that way, when we think about the commands of Jesus in that way, I, I think it causes me to radically change the way that I view those commands, because the tendency for me, and, and, and maybe for you too, is, is to view Jesus' commands as laws to follow in order to evade punishment. Right? If, I, if I do this, if I do the right thing here, then I, I won't have to be punished for it. I won't get into trouble because I've done something that I shouldn't. I, I can often think about it that way. Or, or I can be tempted to see Jesus' commands as instructions meant to unlock rewards if I do them correctly. But what Jesus says here is that, that his commands are, uh, are the mechanism through which we abide in him. It's the mechanism through which we abide in him. This means that when we live according to his words and commands, we're not earning favor. We're not dodging punishment. Rather, we're, we're abiding in him. We're remaining in him, resting in him as we do that. We're, we're trusting in him. And I think we can, go back, we can go back to the very first command that God gave to humanity. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. To keep that command would have, would have been for Adam and Eve to trust that God loved them and knew what was best for them. If, if they would have kept that command, it would have been them trusting him. To go against that command would, would show that they're not trusting God. They're, they're removing that trust from him, placing it somewhere else. In that instance, probably in themselves or in the serpent that told them something different than what God had commanded. So keeping the command is to trust God, abide in God. To go against the command is to not abide in God, not trust in God. So we abide in Jesus, we, we abide in his love for us when we keep his commands. And, and when we abide in him, when we remain connected to him, we'll find ourselves bearing fruit. 
That, that's what branches do when they are connected to the vine. And so the question is then, I mean, that's kind of been focusing on the individualistic sense of that, but the question is, what does this have to do with the church? I mean, after all, can't I, can't I keep Jesus' commands and abide in him and, and, constant, and, and consequently bear fruit apart from the local church? I mean, why can't I just do that by myself? Um, I was talking with a, another pastor the other day, and he quoted something that Pastor Tony Evans uh, said, uh, which I think just really nails it on the head. Um, Tony Evans, in, in talking about the importance of the local church, asked this question. He, he said, can you be married without going home? Can you be married without going home? And the answer is, yeah, you can. You can be married without going home. Being at home is not a requirement of, of marriage. But it's obvious that without going home, you don't have much of a marriage, right? So the question is, can, can you and I abide in Christ? Can we bear fruit apart from the local church? Yeah, can. But without the local church, it, it won't be the fruit that we could bear. It won't be the fruit that we're called to bear. And so when we think about what it means to abide in Christ by keeping his commands, we have to look at what Jesus went on to say in the following verses. So look with me at John 15, uh, verse 12. He says, this is my commandment. He just talked about keeping his commands, abiding in him. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you, so that you will love one another." So here's, here's why I see the local church as essential for the people of God when it comes to bearing fruit. Um, first, that paragraph that I just read begins and ends with Jesus stating that his command is to love one another. Love one another. And that echoes what he had just said a couple chapters ago in, in chapter 13 when he told his disciples that his new command was to love one another. And that aligns with what the other three Gospels tell us about uh, Jesus summarizing the entire law by saying, love God and love others. We just read that earlier from Matthew. So in essence, to abide in Jesus, to abide in his love, means following his commands, love one another. Love one another. Now, to, I would say two things have to be present in order for us to love one another. The first, we have to have the love of God within us. We have to be filled with God's love, connected to his love. We know, we know that happens because God loved us first and filled us with his love. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So 
the love of God needs to be in us. But then second, in order to love one another, there has to be a one another, right? There has to be a one another to love. We can't love one another in isolation. It's just not practically possible. Now, we can love the one another's in our family, our workplaces, our school, our neighborhood, anywhere else where there's others, we can and we should be loving others in those contexts. But again, if we go back to when Jesus was uh, first talking about this new command in chapter 13 of John's gospel, he's talking to his disciples. He says this, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you so also are, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So again, he's talking to his disciples. He's, he's telling them that all people will know that they, plural, are his disciples if they love one another. So it's not about the individual there. Jesus is saying it's about he was a group of disciples loving each other, displaying that for all people. And then they will know that you are my disciples because you're loving one another. So the local church provides the place for this love to be powerfully put on display, this loving one another. And, and that love is seen especially when uh, the dividing walls of hostility are destroyed, like we talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about uh, the church being the temple of God. That love is on display when those walls are broken down and we're loving one another, even when the one another's are very different <laughs> from who we are. Another reason I would say the church is essential is that Jesus stated that his father prunes branches that bear fruit so that they might bear more fruit. And, and we know through experience that, that pruning often takes place through uh, difficulties, through trials, suffering, uncertainty. Um, you know, as a pastor, you're kind of constantly looking for uh, uh, word pictures or stories to use um, to, to illustrate things. And sometimes one just falls right into your lap. And here this morning, Jeff Scheid walks in with a finger all bandaged up from an encounter with, with the hedge clippers yesterday. <laughs> I, I owe you one for this one, Jeff. Pruning's painful. Right? I mean, he, he's, got the, he's got the scar to prove it. I know he was on the other side of the pruning, but that's just a great example that pruning can be painful. And, and we need the support of one another during those times of pruning. Right? When God the Father comes with his pruning shears, the temptation can be to resist it and, and to avoid it, right? Because pruning's not fun, right? It, it's painful, like we said. So the temptation can be to avoid it. We need one another to, to help provide encouragement, uh, perspective, endurance during those times of pruning. I, I mean, you think about the New Testament, writer of Hebrews says, spur one another on. Uh, 1 Corinthians tells us, care for one another. Colossians says, teach one another. 1 Thessalonians says, comfort one another. James says, pray for one another. Uh, I mean, especially during times of pruning, do we need those things in our lives. 
<clears throat> I haven't spoken too much about um, church membership to this point in the sermon series, but, but I, I think this is a good spot to, to talk about that here. Uh, church membership is not required to participate in, in the things that I just mentioned, uh, either on the giving or the receiving end of those. But church membership is, in part, a, uh, a public statement that, that when pruning comes, we're committed to giving and receiving those things to one another. It's a public statement that when pruning comes in my life, I'm, I'm not going to flee the vine. I'm not going to flee. And because I'm not going to flee, I need others to walk alongside me. I need others to do those things as, as uh, the New Testament writers talk about. Um, sometimes pruning comes through the words of a, of a fellow believer. Um, Colossians tells us to admonish one another. And, and I think in that way, church membership is, is a public statement that I'm, I'm opening myself to the pruning that, that can come when I, when I show my true self to those around me, right? That I'm going to be open to that. Um, church, church membership is it's a public statement that when someone else among us is going through times of pruning, that, that I'm going to be there to walk alongside them so that, that they may not flee the vine or... Or, or resist that pruning that God is doing. I mean, uh, church membership is a statement that, that I'm not just in the presence of the vine or close to the vine, but I'm connected to the vine and I desire to bear fruit and I'm accepting of the pruning that, that will encourage that fruit to increase. I would say then... The local church, it's also, it's also essential because it reminds us that true life is only found in the true vine. And there are things within the church that, that constantly point us back to that reality. That's why within the local church we do things like baptism and, and uh, communion. Through baptism, we recognize that, that we, when we die to ourselves— when we cease trusting in ourselves, trusting instead in Jesus, we're resurrected to new life. Uh, that's the symbolism of, of baptism. We die to ourselves, symbolized by going down into the water, and we're raised in Christ. We're raised to new life in Jesus. Again, baptism doesn't save us, but it's that public declaration of what does the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so our faith and our hope reside there. And, and every time uh, when we are baptized, when we watch somebody else get baptized, it's that reminder to us. It points us back to the fact that we are to be branches on the vine, trusting in Jesus for what we need to save us. Um, and, and, and so I would encourage you, if, if your, if your uh, faith is in Jesus— for the forgiveness of sins, and you've not yet been baptized, I would strongly encourage you to consider doing so. Because, uh, again, it's, it's, this, it's this public statement to your brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, to the world, really, that, that you are a branch trusting in the true vine to give you life, that you've died to yourself, and you're raised to new life in Jesus. 
And so if, if that's something you'd like to explore a bit more, um, we are going to have a baptism class coming up on the first Sunday of June uh, during Sunday school, so I would encourage you to think about that. And we're going to have some membership classes uh, the last couple Sundays of June as well. I didn't say that earlier. So, so for both baptism and membership, there'll be um, some opportunities to, uh, to explore that more. Um, if you've not done so yet, I would encourage you to think about that. So, so as the local church, we're reminded of, of, uh, of our identity as branches through baptism, uh, but we're also reminded of that through communion as well. We're reminded of our connection to the vine. Um, so elders, you can go ahead and come forward. Uh, you know, when we, when we come to the table, we don't bring our own efforts. We don't bring our good works. Uh, we come to the table empty-handed to receive what we need for salvation. And so, so just as the branch relies fully on the vine to provide it with life, so we're reminded by the bread and the juice that, that we rely fully on Jesus as our source of life. We don't bring anything to this. It's what Jesus gives to us. And, and so... As we, as we participate in this sacrament together as a local church, we do it because we know that the life of the church is sustained only by Jesus. It's only by Jesus. Together we're a branch that must be connected to the true vine if we are to abide in him and produce the fruit that brings God glory. So as we do this together this morning, we're, we're declaring not just our individual dependence upon the vine, but we're, we're, uh, we're proclaiming our mutual dependence on the vine as well. And that's why we take communion together. We recognize that we come to Christ together for what we need. And so let's keep that in mind as we, as we take communion this morning.